Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Mullaney with Senior Housing News. Senior living is changing at a rapid rate, and CEO Doug Leidig has been focused on keeping Asbury communities ahead of the pack. Leidig is now in his fifth year at the helm of the Frederick, Maryland-based provider. With seven CCRCs, as well as an affiliated technology services company and other lines of business, Asbury was the 16th largest nonprofit senior living organization in the nation in 2018, according to industry statistics from Ziegler and Leading Age. In this episode, Leidig shares why he's proud of how the nonprofit's culture has changed to support ongoing growth and innovation without huge spikes in anxiety among its workforce. He also believes that competition among senior living nonprofits has been replaced by a mindset of coopetition, in which providers bolster each other while also differentiating themselves. And he delves into the latest technology initiatives. Before we get to my interview with Doug, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. We're looking to celebrate unique projects and companies that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative design. If you think you have a project that fits that description, submissions are open now at shnawards.com. And now here's my conversation with Doug Leidig, CEO of Asbury Communities. All right, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate the uh, opportunity. To start, I think you became CEO in June 2015. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So you're, I guess, in your fifth year now. So just wondering if we can start by getting your reflections broadly on your time in the CEO role, if you can talk about any accomplishments that you're particularly proud of or the biggest challenges you've encountered or anything that surprised you. Uh, sure. It's uh, um, it's been an interesting five years. It's been a great five years, uh, a learning experience as well. But I think some of the accomplishments that I'm, I'm very proud of with the organization is the culture change we've gone from the typical top-down to being driven from bottom-up. We've implemented a new way of doing business that helps drive culture change and innovation called LEAD. And we're putting in a stronger, uh, we're putting a lot more stronger systems in for a data-driven type of culture. And the, finally, I think the, the one that has helped us most significantly is the diversifying of our, of our leadership. And that's a process of not only just from their background, but you know, professional and personal experience. Right. I'm curious about the, the lead approach. Can you just describe that briefly? Sure. Uh, lead, it, it, it stands for listening to those closest to the process, engaging those in a fun, non-anxious way. A is the ask why, why not, what if, which is what drives innovation and, and doing a new doing business in a different way. And the D is data. Uh, and I think there's uh, so much we can do around, around data in our organization to help those uh, running our communities make more informed, better decisions and giving them another tool in their toolbox to help them in their everyday. Right. I think it's interesting. The part that kind of stood out to me there was that one of the focuses is bringing anxiety down and other components of that. I think we hear from other organizations as well. I think a lot are driving toward being more data-driven, for instance, but I don't often talk to leaders who talk about sort of bringing the temperature down and keeping anxiety low across the workforce. Can you talk about that component of it? Sure. I think it's all of us understand and we know that the best decisions are made when everyone is calm. You've got all the data in front of you and you can have 
the the open discussions to come to the conclusion. You know, the the worst decisions are made when you react, when you're running high in anxiety. So if you can create that culture, and we do that a lot of that through resilient leadership. It's a training and it's an education of being a, trans, a step down transformer, where you can just sort of lower the temperature, lower the anxiety, look at the facts, and then make a rational decision. That has gone a long way for us, and, and I'm, I'm very proud of the team that's with Asbury, and that's being led not only here at our, at our the ASK, which is the Asbury Support Collaboration Center, but at each of our local communities as well. Right. So at the moment, I'm curious, what are your top priorities just day to day? Well, the, the top priorities are obviously uh, workforce is a significant issue for us. Growth, leveraging our strategic partnerships are probably the three areas that I focus a lot of my time and attention to. Right. I want to sort of dig into some of those specifics, but maybe to take a step back for a moment, we already were talking about change, I think, in the context of leading with data and finding leadership strategies for helping people cope with change, not having it become too anxiety provoking. So I'm wondering do you agree that senior living is changing at a pretty quick rate these days? And how do you see, in particular, the senior living consumer changing in, say, the next decade? Well, yes, our industry is definitely changing. And I believe that more and more of these types of conversations have to happen within, within the industry about the way we do business. The consumer of the future, I think this industry is going to be challenged with dealing with a group of residents and a consumer group that we've never dealt with before. They're going to be so diversified, and that's everything from financially to their health to their wants and their desires. It's going to be a challenge for us, but I also think that the consumer of the future is not really going to be with us for at least another nine to ten years because, you know, the boomers, the younger boomers don't want the lifestyle that we offer just yet. And they're not, you hear a lot that they're, they, they want to age in place, meaning their own home. I think that the big shift we're going to see in our industry is that that's going to change from wanting to age in place to actually wanting to move to our communities. The reason I say that is that I look at the younger boomers and they're taking care of their, their mom or their dad who have not moved and, and are living at their own home. And they see the challenges with that. They see the depression, they see the isolation, they see the demands on the family members to make sure that they're taken care of. I believe that the younger boomer is not going to want that for themselves nor their families. So I think that's where we're going to start seeing a shift and the conversation is going to happen of saying, okay, well, we're hearing that they want to age in place. And I think that's true with the older boomer, but that younger boomer is not going to want that. The challenge we're going to have is how do we reposition our campuses over these next six, nine, 10 years to create a lifestyle that that younger boomer is going to want. So I think that's sort of the way I would, would frame up the, the consumer of the future for, for the product that we offer. Interesting. And as you, you brought up the challenge of repositioning campuses to appeal to that boomer consumer, are there any projects that Asbury has underway or any theories that you have about um, what those repositionings might look like and what that consumer specifically will want? Sure. We, we go under a continuous master repositioning process at all our campuses to make sure that we're looking out not only 10 and 15 years, but even five or 10. So we constantly have the refreshing of our campuses. But what we're trying to determine is what new amenities do we offer? And I think everybody has different dining venues. Everybody has fitness centers. 
but how do you, what's the living arrangements in terms of what's that product? Are there, is it smaller? Is it larger, et cetera? But I think also that there's an opportunity for us that we're looking at niche type communities. You're hearing a little bit about that in the industry, but how do we start offering some of that on our campuses, such as marketing to a specific diverse culture, such as maybe somebody that's looking for an Asian community, right? Or somebody that uh, is really uh, some, some natural affinity group. So we're, we're looking at how do we sort of leverage based on our geographic locations, because we're in multiple locations, what's the need in that community and what we're sort of the, the future moving to. And on top of all this, we're, of course, doubling down on technology. Uh, we know that that's just that's a non-negotiable. You know, the, the, the future consumer is going to want not only the technology they're using every day, but what else can we bring to the table that enhances what they may want in the future? Right. Yeah. Well, let's shift to tech. That's another big topic that I want to talk about because I know Asbury is very active in the tech sphere. I think you have an affiliated tech company. And we recently reported that Asbury doubled its tech-related expenditures in the past year. So I'm just curious, what tech has you excited right now? Is there any tech that you think is overrated or not quite ready for prime time? Yeah. Well, actually, what has me most excited is that we've repositioned our technology company from just offering electronic medical records support implementation to creating essentially what I have determined three buckets, creating a best-of-class IT company that can run a CCRC because there's so much interoperability that's needed. I think if we can nail down that that opportunity, that provides a great asset to to not only those who live with us, but those who work with us. The second bucket is the data, right? So now that we have all this data, now that we're, we've created this foundation where we can access our data, how do we get that into the user's hands? And then the third part, and this is where the fun, exciting part happens, is that I want us to become an incubator for new product development in technology. Now, that doesn't mean that we're developing it, but we, we, we know there's a lot of different industries looking to get into senior living, and they're trying to either come up with a proof of concept that it may work. So what we're doing is we're becoming that incubator. Currently, we're doing uh, two different pilot programs. One is around enhanced mobility at one of our campuses where we, we're engaging multiple types of technology to try to get to the point where we can be predictive on falls. And this is not only those who live in our nursing home or assisted living, but independent living as well. And then the second pilot we're, we're working on is uh, radar monitoring. For instance, that we know that if you're a dementia resident, you know, you can agitate them very quickly by putting a blood pressure cuff on their arm. Well, there's technology out there that can, can do remote monitoring. So how can we do that in our skilled nursing dementia units and remote monitor people's vitals so we don't, you know, agitate them, which is a quality of life for them? The second part is then how do you leverage that and become predictive. So if we can create the baseline of heart rate and pulse and, and compare that to national data, how can we start predicting heart attacks that maybe we can't stop the heart attack, but what we can do is have a nurse there as you know your vitals and your heart rate, your blood pressure, get to that warning sign that we can have a nurse there sit you down in the chair. So if you are having a heart attack, you don't fall and have a secondary incident like a you know hit your head. So that's the type of things that I think that can make a significant impact on our industry, the quality of life for our residents, and uh, something that we can we we can bring to the table. Great, yeah, you brought up improving quality of life for residents. It occurs to me that probably that 
being able to be more predictive and intervene quickly also is going to cut down on hospital admissions and probably make Asbury and other senior living providers who are doing these sorts of things more attractive partners to health systems and hospitals. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that's very fair to say. I think that goes all around, you know, us as an industry telling our story better, right? You know, saying here's all the things we can do. Here's how we can help. Here's how we can be a partner at the table. So absolutely, I think there's a, there's, I think we're just starting to be at the tip of the iceberg for the opportunities. Great. And then to circle back on what you said about having a, a tech product that can basically help run a CCRC and that interoperability is a big part of that. Are you talking about the systems being able to talk to each other both within the different levels of care on the campus and then also being interoperable with, say, a hospital medical record system? Oh, absolutely. Doctors, offices, physicians, insurance companies, because right now we, we have so many different systems. If you're HR or your maintenance or your housekeeping, laundry, I mean, you just look at the diverse amount of different departments we have. The ability to have all that data centralized and, and accessible is a key component for us to being able to do our job better, uh, to run our business differently. You know, we creating those dashboards, the forecasting, financial forecasting, to become smarter because, you know, traditionally what we do is we rely on lagging indicators. You, you get your financials from the previous month, you know, the 10th of the, 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 the month. So now what we're doing is our, our new CFOs created a forecasting model where you take all the data we have in that business unit leader, they can input it and they can forecast where they are actually today, what they're predicting over the next quarter till the end of the year. And then we can start making smart business decisions so we're not having to scramble in the third quarter or fourth quarter to make up with some some lagging information. So I think that it goes all around running our business differently by having access to uh, the data and, and having those closest to the process very involved in, in, in the day-to-day and giving them the resources they need. Is that rolled out across the whole company at this point? Yes, the forecasting model is, yes. Is it a plan to offer these platforms or, or that particular model to other CCRC companies as well as, as a product? I think once we uh, run it a few more months, it's been rolled out about three months now. So I think giving giving us the rest of this year, that can be an, a product that we would offer through our through our IT company to other senior living organizations, and that really falls under that being the best of class CCRC IT system, that first bucket that we're mm-hmm. we, we've transitioned our IT company to. I think this gets back to a topic you and I talked right after, shortly after you became CEO. And one of the notable things I think you said at that time was that CCRCs might have to rethink who's a competitor and how they relate to their competitors to find ways to work together. And I think this gets at that, that you're providing a product to other CCRCs that, you know, how do you think about that in terms of, do you offer it to providers who would be in the same markets as you? And how are you just thinking about, I guess, affiliation versus competition these days? That's a good question. And I don't know if there really is a, a competition anymore. I think uh, I think the word I've heard used before is co-opetition, right? There's always <laughs> ways and there's always somebody doing something, you know, a part of their business that may be better than what you're doing. So my stance is why do we have to recreate that? Let's Let's learn off somebody and see if we can partner for the benefit of both. I think in the past, traditionally, affiliations were looked at one wins and one loses, right? I think there's opportunities now to talk about the ways we can come together and create a a strategic partnership to serve both organizations. And IT, I think, is a great foundational topic to start that discussion around. 
Great. We are seeing more affiliations, I think, across the nonprofit space. Some of that's driven by CEO retirements that have happened, but there are also a lot of strategic affiliations happening. Can you speak to the need to to compete against for-profits and how that's maybe driving some of this? And then in terms of just as very specifically, how are you thinking about growth and are you weighing affiliations? Sure. You know, let me address the affiliation perspective first and part of our growth. We do have a very uh, dynamic growth strategy, which is focused on not only affiliations, but acquisitions as well. And it's, we're also not just focused on bricks and mortar. We're looking at new business lines, whether we acquire a new business line or we affiliate with somebody that has some business lines that we may not have. So we can now offer to, to both organizations and provide some almost immediate scale. So I think, you know, when we talk about, when I talk about growth and I look at it for, from a strategic positioning for us, I don't really factor in the for profits, to be honest with you. I, I see that. The for-profits are there, and a lot of them are running the, you know, the standalone skilled or assisted living and with dementia care. They're getting into the CCRC market, but I, I think that I'm looking at it more of a holistic. That whether you're for-profit or not-for-profit, it really doesn't matter to me. It's like how can we be stronger together? And then, you know, I think part of that issue is to your previous point about insurance companies and others looking at us, well, when you start building that type of scale, now you start talking, you know, the scalability of the number of lives served, uh, the number of staff you have, because then insurance and, you know, uh, self-funded and, and risk, you know, groups. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in that. And I think that's where the conversations happen, whether or not you're for-profit or not-for-profit. Yeah. And to that point, we are seeing in the perennial consortium, a for-profit provider and Juniper partnering with nonprofit providers to create their own Medicare Advantage plan. How are you viewing that Medicare Advantage opportunity specifically? Obviously, Asbury has a lot of lives on that you care for. And certainly it seems like you're putting pieces in place with technology, et cetera, to be able to have those outcomes that it seems like you need to be successful in, in, in kind of insurance, Medicare Advantage environment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's definitely something we need to, to recognize. Well, we do recognize, but the question is, how do we play in that field? And we've actually been following some of those in Juniper, and we know some of the groups that are part of that, and we've been talking to them and discussing opportunities. So my desire is not to go out and create this on our own, because again, going back to there's others who do this well. So why not look at some of those Advantage programs that have that have already been established and see if we can join with them, be a partner in that consortium. And I know there's a couple other groups that are doing that as well. So I think there's lots of opportunities. So we're going to approach it from the fact of versus starting our own, how do we look to strategically join one or two of those? Great. Let's sort of talk really big picture about the CCRC model. One thing that this is a quote from our, our first interview that we did. You said, I think the model will persist, but I think it's going to look different. Do you think uh, there are ways that CCRCs look different today than they did five years ago? And looking to the future, I know we've already talked about repositioning campuses. I'm wondering, do you also see changes coming in things like pricing models with more rental, less entrance fee, for instance? Or, you know, we've seen some groups sort of pull the skilled nursing component out or start to build smaller and urban areas. Do you think those trends have staying power and where where are you seeing Asbury fitting into those trends? Absolutely. I think they do. I think, again, diversifying your business model will be best in terms of the rental, in terms of entrance fee. You know, I, I know there's a few out there that even do the equity model, but that has not caught on yet. And we're sort of exploring why that might not have caught on yet in terms of the CTRC model. 
But we are looking at at, at all those. I think that uh, skilled nursing trend is is an interesting one and one that we're definitely through our master repositioning, we have been downsizing some of our skilled nursing units. And we would, you know, as part of our growth, we would not go out and acquire a freestanding skilled nursing uh, facility. You know, we, we are looking that the components of our campuses would be less skilled. Assisted living, you know, currently I think is, is continues to gain popularity and will be a, a key component of our continuum. And in fact, I think 90, over 98% of our admissions to our assisted living come from within. You know, we're not even really direct, directly admitting to our assisted living from external uh, they're coming from within the campus. And then, of course, again, leveraging and, and building out uh, the independent living model. I do not see us transitioning necessarily our entrance fee models to rentals because I think there's a financial impact that that has when you have an entrance fee going out, but you're only getting rental in. And I think the other part that people need to be aware of when you start talking rental, rental does not necessarily mean moderate income because you know there's a there's a capital component there's a, a renovation refreshing component uh, when you look at some of the rental rates that are out there they're they're pretty significant uh, so I think the question is how do you provide a rental product for that moderate income and I'm not sure that that happens on one of our existing campuses but maybe that would be either through new growth or again through an affiliation or acquisition process but I think there's a lot of challenges with that got it I guess related to the skilled nursing downsizing, you also mentioned the growth through acquisition. I think that you've acquired some home health. Is that really where you're focused is finding home health and other sort of community-based healthcare services to be able to, I don't know if replace is the right word, but to come onto campus and provide more healthcare services and at the same time as you maybe move away from skilled nursing? Yes, we're always looking to supplement, you know, the services that we provide on our campuses, whether it's through home care, home health. You know, we're, you know, exploring, you know, looking at pharmacy options. How do you, you know, how do you, you know, leverage something along those lines? Is there other opportunities within, within that business line? But I think the other part is that we, going back to the whole point where I don't feel that we need to own every business line. So if we if we're in a, if we get into a geographic area that has a very strong home care company home health company that we would certainly look to partner. Uh, the other part of that is the flip side is in our existing communities, others that want to get into that, how can I make, how can we create a consortium that maybe that um, there's three or four of us that own a home care company or there's, you know, if we have the home health license, well, how do we create and allow others to buy in to, to make that as a, not just an expense line item to them, but they can start sharing in revenue opportunities as well. So I think that's sort of the way I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of a, an adjustment in terms of the way we're looking at these business units. Got it. How about hospice? Do you own any hospice or do you partner to provide hospice on Asbury communities? There's a partnership for hospice at our communities. We do not own any hospice at this point in time. Uh, that's certainly an interest, but right now the, the opportunity hasn't presented itself and we're very happy with our hospice partners. Great. I guess one other topic is just new building or development opportunities. I assume you're reinvesting, obviously, in your campuses and trying to reposition them, as we talked about, to meet the future consumer. Um, are you looking at just ground-up development? And if so, are there particular markets that you would eye for that? No, not at this point in time. Building a, you know, a greenfield project is a significant investment in capital and time. And, you know, you're talking 10 years out until you can really start getting your return on investment. I've, my stance is there's enough opportunity with existing CCRCs, whether it's, you know, the affiliation or the acquisition to help us with our growth plan at this point. 
So I think if the perfect opportunity would come up somewhere, that we wouldn't be opposed to it. But uh, generally speaking, our, our focus is on existing uh, communities. So to wrap up, just curious, what's keeping you up at night? And uh, what are you most excited about looking at the next 12 months, let's say? The next 12 months, a uh, short time period. Um, <laughs> I think that what keeps what keeps me up t- uh, at night is definitely the workforce. And that's not, mm-hmm. you know, just, uh, th- and I'm not just talking about those that are actually providing the direct hands-on care, but I'm talking about from a leadership perspective and, and management perspective. Uh, you know, how do we not only grow our own, but how do we continue to make this industry something that is exciting for people that don't even really know what we do? You know, going back to telling our story, how do we do that better? Because I think that's the way, you know, pays one thing, but when you create the right culture, when you create, you know, people believe in your mission and, and they see that there's opportunities for professional growth, they start getting excited about the opportunities that senior living provides. So I think that's sort of, that definitely keeps me up at night in terms of uh, looking at the future. And then I think the second part is not only just these 12 months, but these next five to six years, because I know that for every resident that we get, we're going to, we're going to be fighting for because of the market. It's pretty well saturated. I mean, there's a lot of product on the market and it's a little bit ahead of its time in terms of those aging income qualified. So I think that's going to be a, a constant challenge of how to, how do we continue to invest in ourselves? How do we continue to reposition ourselves? And at the same time, how do we create the revenue streams to ensure that we can, can, can continue to do that? Right. Yeah, definitely a big challenge. All right, Doug, it was an interesting conversation as always. Thanks again for joining the podcast. I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, uh, and again, I'll continue to follow all the other podcasts you develop. They're very helpful. That does it for this episode of Transform. I'd like to once again remind all our listeners that we're now accepting submissions for the Senior Housing News Architecture and Design Awards. You can find more information at shnawards.com. I'm Tim Mullaney. Thanks for listening.